I'm Beth White. I spent almost a decade in the criminal justice system working for the parole services, specifically dealing with reintegrating offenders into society. And today we have a special guest, Sarah McKinnon. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, um, I have spent 31 years in the criminal justice system. Um, I am the chief public defender here in Reno County. I've also worked at the Sedgwick County Public Defender's Office, and I'm just really glad to be here. Oh, yeah, she's my mom. (laughs) And this is cleared. Good evening, mom. Good evening, daughter. So as you can probably tell, this is not my dad. This is my mom. (laughs) I just so happen to have two very smart, brilliant parents that are very willing to help me with this podcast. Um, Dad had a knee replacement today. That is why he's not here. He is higher than a kite right now. (laughs) Yes, he is. And while that would be very entertaining to listen to, probably not the best audio. No, not a good idea today. So as mom mentioned, she's a a criminal defense attorney. I am. Spent the majority of her career as a criminal defense attorney. You know that my dad is a retired judge and a legislator. So growing up, I had very interesting table conversations, which definitely is what led me to the passions that I have today. Something that's been brought up several times this week is conviction integrity units. Um, Dad and I had a very exciting phone call with a future guest who brought one up. Um, And honestly, that episode may be the next one or it'll be coming up very soon nonetheless. And then one of my friends also brought up conviction integrity units. Um, Conviction integrity units are special subdivisions within prosecutor's offices that deal with preventing, identifying, and rectifying wrongful convictions. And it's a relatively new concept as well. Yes. I think from the research, I said maybe just something new within the past 15 years. Um, from what I could tell, they started in Dallas, is my understanding. Uh, it's something that the individual district attorney decides that he or she wants and or needs within their community. And then they're responsible for funding it, staffing it, supplying them with resources, what have you. From my perspective, it might be a little bit of an oxymoron to have a con- conviction integrity unit in Dallas, Texas, but I... I digress. (laughs) And I guess it's something important that we talk about because we spend a lot of time talking about wrongful convictions and what goes wrong and all the things that lead to the horrible, horrible things that happen to these men that we've talked about. We haven't spent a whole bunch of time talking about what's being done to rectify this. And while I agree with you, I wish there was no need for these. Um, There definitely is. And there's been a lot of promising developments coming from these units. When I started researching them, actually it was 
the future guest, I know I'm being very cryptic here. He was talking about the Philadelphia Conviction Integrity Unit. Specifically, it, it was formed in 2018 when District Attorney Larry Krasner was brought into office. And he immediately recruited, let me get her name right, Patricia Cummings, who happened to be one of the four co-founders of the Dallas unit. So uh, immediately upon him entering office, he acquires Patricia to come and start this conviction integrity unit in the Philadelphia area. And what's so unique and special about the Philly conviction integrity unit, um, just a little stats for you. Keep in mind, this is all since 2018 when DA Kresner was elected and put this in place. There has already been 21 total exonerations Keep in mind, this is just the DA doing the legwork and finding 21 exonerations since 2018. 20 of those involved official misconduct. I'll give you a little forethought into what's going to happen in the story today. They also deal with resentencing and oversentencing. They have 139 juvenile resentencings that they've done since 2018. 23 uh, sentences were commuted. 93 active investigations currently. He's quadrupled the staff in this unit during that time frame. And just in 2019 alone, 804 submissions were made. Goodness. Kudos. It, Kudos yes. to him. And it's my understanding that I think it's probably different for each individual county, but his county specifically, um, the incarcerated inmates or offenders or whatever may be submit uh, requests for their cases to be reviewed on this integrity unit. Of the exonerees that they've had, a total of 384 combined years lost from the exonerees that they've been able to exonerate. That's nuts. When I looked more into those 21 exonerations, 20 involving misconduct, one that really stuck with me was that of Chris Williams. And this case is a little bit different. I'm going to tell the story a little bit different. Because the case isn't so much, well, it is Chris Williams, but the story involves more James White. James White was a 19-year-old in the Philly area when he was charged with the murder of Michael Hainsworth, who was a 30-year-old at the time of his death. It just so happened that, that Michael Hainsworth dated James's 13-year-old girlfriend at the time. So he's arrested and charged for that murder. Shortly after his arrest, he was charged with another murder, the murder of 19-year-old Marion Grinnett. He was killed on June of that same year. And this is all happening in 1989, by the way. White's attorney negotiated a deal with the district attorney for White to plead guilty to both of the murderers in exchange for him identifying anyone else that helped with the crimes. The DA promised him that he would receive two consecutive sentences of five to 10 years, serving more than total of 20 years for two murders, which to start off with, that's wrong. Murdering two people, gunpoint, cold-blooded murder, 20 years tops. There's more to this story, so we'll just keep going. So he's charged with those two murders. He agrees to the deal. As part of that deal, he implicates Chris Williams. And he also tells them, oh, yeah, I'm involved in another murder. This is murder number three for James White, and this is him volunteering this information. The murder was of William Graham, a 60-year-old cab driver. He said that happened in January. As a result of James indicating Chris Williams, he was arrested and charged with the murder, all three murders, that of Hainsworth, Grinnett, and Graham. Now, 
before I get into this too much, and I want you to stop me if it gets confusing, because this case is very confusing. Just a little spoiler alert. There are six total murders in this, three separate cases. And James White, the person that's providing all this testimony, indicates... I don't know, a handful of other people. Just to simplify this story, I'm going to mainly talk about James and then Chris Williams, the exonerate that we're going to talk about. So the first two murders that he made the deal in, he he made a deal for 20 years. What, max, yes. Max, what was the possible maximum sentence? I don't know. Was He was probably looking at life. Yeah, at least. Well, and to get into that a little bit more, so all this is happening, those three murders, right? During that same time frame... Let me get the exact days. Uh, in September of that same year, during a 10-hour stretch, three bodies of young men were found murdered over the Philly area. They were all within a two-mile radius of each other, and they all had shotgun wounds to the head. That's Otis Reynolds, a 33-year-old, Gavin Anderson, 19, and Kevin Anderson, 17. Kevin and Gavin were brothers. So all three of these men found a single shotgun wound to the back of the head lying in the streets of Philly within a two-mile radius. So since this man, James White, excuse me, and these names get very confusing. And it's also, I think James White's an alias for him too. And there's aliases for everybody else. So we're just going to stick to James White as his name. Um, As part of this plea deal, the DA comes to him again because, hey, very similar murders. Three more men just showed up. So he questions James about these three new murders. James says, no idea, nothing about it. They go back on. They send him back to the county waiting for prosecution. So a couple weeks down the line, the DA does what he can to get James back in his office to question him again. And according to James, the DA said that a fellow inmate where he was incarcerated said that they heard James talk about the triple homicide and saying that he was a part of it. And due to that information, the DA was nullifying their plea agreement. And not only was he nullifying it, he was going to charge them with all six murders. Wow. So keep in mind that's Hainsworth, the original one, Grinnett, Graham, and then the triple homicide that just occurred. That's Reynolds, Anderson, Anderson brothers. And that he not only is he going to charge him with all six murders, he's actively pursuing the death penalty. The only way James has any sigh of relief is that if he agrees to plead guilty to all of those charges, all six first degree murder charges, and implicate everybody else involved in those crimes. And the last three cases he knew nothing about when the first... Correct. And I'm sure that jogged his memory, didn't it? Yeah, correct. So he agrees to do this. Um, And again, he names Williams, Chris Williams, as the chief person in this triple homicide. And what the kind of story that he spends for the DA and the detectives is that this Chris Williams is some criminal mastermind, drug lord, gang leader who's also in the business of dealing firearms and he has this gang and that James White is a part of this gang. And in fact, James says that that 60 year old cab driver, that murder that he just voluntarily gave them the information for, he was murdered as part of initiation into Chris's gang that James murdered that man in order to be a part of this gang. Um, And so that's the story that he tells the DA and the detectives and they kind of run with it from that point. So let me guess, um, they've questioned this, this kid, this 19 year old for all intents and purposes, it's under the law. It's an adult, but, uh, well, don't they say your mind doesn't fully mature until mid twenties? Oh, absolutely yeah. not. So and they, honestly, maybe mid thirties for me, who knows? <laughs> you're still working on it. Yeah, honey. yeah. Um, 
So this 19-year-old kid who doesn't remember anything the first time now comes up with a confession. Well, yeah. It's either that or face six counts of capital murder. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did that. I did that. So confession first. And then let me guess, detectives go out to try to prove this confession. Well, it gets a little, we're missing one step in between that to sweeten the deal to enticing him to admitting guilt on all six of these murder charges. The DA told him at the time, you plead to these charges in 15 years. I'll write a letter to the parole board uh, requesting you clemency. So you're out in 15 years. I'll do that for you if you do this. Give me all the information. Give me everything you can. And then I'll do that for you. Well, how in the world can the prosecutor guarantee clemency? Well, wouldn't you know that was not a part of the written plea agreement? Because apparently this is something I didn't necessarily know. Plea agreements are very formal and written out. It's not just a behind closed doors kind of we'll do this, you do that. I mean, it's a very formal thing, correct? Well, they should be written yes. out. And signed on all parties and the judge view. I mean, it's a very formal proceeding. It's not some backdoor negotiations like you're working your Final Fantasy team or something. Not necessarily. Um, it, it's not required, at least in the state of Kansas, it's not required that a, a plea agreement be in writing. Um, in my opinion, it is bad, bad, bad practice not to have everything in writing and have um, everyone sign it. Yeah, and this is coming from a 30-year veteran in the criminal justice field. So that's worth something. So um, as a part of this, his testimony, Chris White is arrested, as well as the one other co-defendant I'm going to talk about, um, Theo Wilson. Theo Wilson is 17 years old at the time, and he's also indicated by um, James as being a part of this triple homicide. So they all stand trial. Was it one trial or did they have separate trials? There was three separate trials, three separate cases. Okay. So first the Hainsworth trial and just to jog your memory, this is the 30 year old that had some sort of relationship with James's 13 year old girlfriend at the time. And that's the one that James was originally arrested for. So according or during the prosecution part of the trial, the prosecution relied on James's testimony as being an eyewitness to the crime. His girlfriend, which I assume is a 13-year-old that had some sort of relationship with Hainsworth, there's not a whole lot of detail out there about that, but her name's Rashida, and an informant named David Lee. We don't know this at the time. The defense doesn't know this, but David Lee is an FBI informant and has done many deals with the DA's office. Regarding well, he's, he's a professional snitch. Yes, yes. Um, so according to James and Rashida, the story goes that, and keep in mind, these stories change so many times. Um, even at trial, they, they were changing their stories and their stories didn't match. So Rashida's story was that she, and I guess she became involved in this to begin with because um, Hainsworth's friends indicated that he got a page from Rashida the night that he died and he left to go meet her. So that's how she got brought into the story. initially and that's how obviously james got into it too um so rashida's story was that it was her job to lure hainsworth michael hainsworth to this particular corner where her boyfriend and the gang were going to rob him because part of james's whole uh, narrative about chris and this gang was that they were drug dealers but they were drug dealers because they stole from other drug dealers and they did whatever they could to get ahead including murder so her story was that she was to lure them, lure Hainsworth to this corner. They would rob him. They'd go about other way. So she says that happened. They came back. They pushed Hainsworth into a car, came back. Several hours later, Hainsworth wasn't with them. She didn't ask questions. According to James, 
Very similar. Rashida was responsible for luring him there. They then got him up into their apartment where they proceeded to torture and beat him, stepping on his head, hitting him, kicking him. I think one of them even said they, or he said someone even assaulted him with a hammer, just a lot of abuse going on, Um, trying to get him to tell them where his drug stash was and where his money was. When he failed to comply with that, according to James, they pushed him into a car. Well, actually, he said they put a blanket. Well, what he said was that they tied his feet with telephone wire. They blindfolded him with a tie. They put a blanket over him and a hat on him and led him outside into a car. But he said that the bindings on his feet with the telephone wire were loose enough where he could walk. And that's how he was able to get down the stairs and into this vehicle without obviously drawing attention or falling. Um, and they took him somewhere, shot him in the car, killed him, dumped him. Let me ask you this. Was there any evidence at all no. that Hainsworth had <laughs> been? Saying no. The only evidence regarding anything with Chris and any, there was actually, um, another person that he indicated in this crime too, that we're not going to get into just for the name of, or just for the sake of making it simple. But no, there was no evidence tying anybody to this other than James and Rashida. Was there any evidence that he'd been severely beaten. Well, that, it's funny you should say that because no, there wasn't. Interesting. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing that comes up later is that he was in fact tied with phone cords on his ankles um, and a blindfold, a tie blindfolded his eyes, but the ties on his legs were so tight, there's <laughs> no way he could have moved at all his legs independently. So he would have been hopping, which is why I focused so much on James saying it was a loose enough binding for him to be able to walk. So that's their story. That's what they present um, at trial. And then this David Lee, this informant, testifies that he sold, or at Chris's request, Chris Williams' request, he sold him a weapon, the weapon used in the crime, and that he's fully aware that this is illegal and he's not getting any kind of deals out of this, and he's just doing this out of the goodness of his heart because he needs to confess, and he's never had so much as a speeding ticket in his life, and he knows he's going to be in trouble. I mean, just laying it on during the jury trial about how he's doing this at great personal cost to himself. Did he have his fingers crossed behind him when he was testifying? He he must have, I tell you what. Wink, wink. Yes. Um, So based on that testimony from James and Rashida, Chris was found guilty of the crime, and he was given a life sentence. And actually, he was, the official charges were... First degree murder, kidnapping, robbery, conspiracy, possession of an instrument of a crime, and sentenced to life. And then his co-defendant that James also named was also convicted at that point, too. And then we get to the second trial, because keep in mind, there's six murders involved in this three trials. So the second one, and also keep in mind, at this point, James has already pled guilty to all of these in response to giving testimony against the others that he is a sole witness of. Anyways. So the second one is that William Graham. He's that 60-year-old cab driver that was murdered. And again, according to James, he was murdered as some sort of initiation thing to be a part of Chris Williams's gang. Uh, it went to trial. Williams was charged, tried, and acquitted. Because wouldn't you know you need more evidence than just this one guy's thoughts? I mean, there was nothing else regarding it other than James's testimony. The third trial comes along. That's that Marion Grinnett. This is a 19-year-old man. Okay, so initially, James White was charged with the Hainsworth murder, right? And that's the boyfriend, the weird drama with that. And then they came at him with this Grinnett murder, and that's what opened him up to making a deal with the DA. And that's where he uh, he again indicated that Chris Williams, he was this murder was 
occurred because Chris Williams deemed it necessary as part of this drug gun smuggling gang ritual. So again, Williams was tried in December of that year. And again, he was acquitted. Ooh. So he's keep in mind, he already has one murder conviction for Hainsworth that he received life in prison for. And then he was uh, acquitted on the two other cases. So now we're getting down to the third case of Otis Reynolds and Kevin and Gavin Anderson, the triple homicide. So shortly after the bodies were found, the police identified these men as drug dealers from Brooklyn and their deaths were added to the drug tally for that year in Philly. Keep in mind, this is September. And at that point they had already broken the record for all previous years of drug related deaths in Philadelphia. And it was only September of that year. So that kind of gives you an indication of the background environment that was going on during this, during this time. And again, their only witnesses were James White, his girlfriend, his 13-year-old girlfriend, Rashida. I assume it's 13-year-old Rashida and the informant, David Lee. So their testimony was that these were, in fact, drug dealers from the Brooklyn area and that they were lured to Philly on the promise of buying two AK-47s. Because remember this gang that everyone's supposedly in also deals drugs. And, oh, excuse me, also deals weapons. And so they come to buy the weapons. They're in the apartment. They hand over, I think it's $2,400 to purchase these AK-47s. Uh, according to James, Chris goes in the back, gets an AK-47, and then proceeds to point it at them, demanding more money. And then again, it goes into this whole um, torture scenario where they're wanting more money. And eventually, and this makes it even more confusing because James never indicates who the people are and how they are tortured or what happens to them because he doesn't know anybody's names, which kind of weird anyways. And so at one point, one of the men indicate, yes, I have 22,000 more dollars at this house. So, um, Chris and somebody, some other gang member in this gang that they named that they never were able to identify, take this man, they come back with the money and not the man. So James and Rashida both assume that this man's dead, where they proceed to torture and interrogate the remaining two victims. Um, both of them say, you know, you have all of our money at this point. I think it's $26,400 is what they alleged to have taken from these men. Um, James said that he rented a van at the request of Chris. They load these men into the van. James is in front. Chris is in back with um, Wilson, Theo Wilson, I said, that's the other one we're going to talk about, the 17-year-old. They're interrogating them while driving around the city. Uh, according to James, at one point, Chris shoots one of the victims in the head several times, and then they proceed to throw him out the back of the moving van. So that that's important to remember, too. Uh, the remaining victim, obviously, is hysterical at this point. They drive a couple more miles uh, according to James, Chris shoots him again and they throw him out the vehicle and that's that. It's all done with before 4 p.m. that day. Broad daylight. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, Rashida pretty much lines up that testimony with regards to them being tortured at the house. And then again, here comes David Lee. Yeah, I sold him the weapons. Um, and there's some other weird stuff that I won't get into just to not make this complicated. But again, main testimony from him is just them selling weapons 
of some sort to Chris. So David Lee, our professional snitch, did he have a heavy conscience again? And He and- did. You know, he's never been in any trouble ever, ever before, not even a speeding ticket. And he understands that he's going to face trouble after this, but he just, he needs to, he needs to get this out. He Good needs for this him. information. Good out. for him. Yeah. So based on all of that, um, Chris is convicted in August of that year. And so is Wilson, Theo Wilson, the 17-year-old. Okay, question. Yes. Uh, the the rental of the van. Surely they got the van. You would think. Um, based upon the information that I was able to do during my research, there wasn't a whole lot of investigation done at all, which we'll get into here in a second, at least not for these suspects. There was well, a lot I'm, of stuff done for other suspects. I'm thinking if I go to Enterprise and bring a van back that's got blood, blood and, and yeah. body matter in yeah. there, that there might be a question Probably, about I mean, that. if you're shooting somebody multiple times in the head, you got to think there's bullet holes or at least bullet. yeah a hundred percent so guns surely they had the guns no nothing um surely the the victims had evidence of the torture you are just so smart no we're gonna <laughs> get to that I'm very good yes and we're gonna get into that and i feel certain there was a bag with twenty six thousand dollars you would think so hmm. okay so uh they're both convicted Chris, the adult, he's 20, and I haven't said this, Chris is a 29-year-old carpenter in the area. Uh, He has six children, a family man. I mean, (coughs) by all accounts, not some big gang leader, drug dealer, gun runner. And then the 17-year-old Theo Wilson is also, I guess I should say, Chris is convicted on all three counts, ordered to death, all three counts. And um, Wilson, being 17, was granted life in prison. Because at that time there was some sort of mandatory life in prison. Well, I don't. I don't think yet we can whack minors in this country. We haven't quite in, not got met there that yet. Threshold. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, and they went on their way to prison. So now we start the appeals process. And let me get this. Hold on one second, because this is something I definitely want you to comment on. Um. Obviously, Chris immediately started appeals, was given an attorney, a, an appellate attorney to start the appeals process. But apparently, uh, Theo Wilson wasn't eligible to receive a new attorney for appeals. And it said that Pennsylvania is the only state that provides no general funding for indigent defense. You being a part of the indigent defense in Kansas, I thought maybe you would have something to say about that. Well, I, I think I do have something to say about that. Um, you know, before the Board of Indigent Defense Services, uh, the the legal community relied on private attorneys. Yeah. Um, everybody took their turn taking criminal cases. And you get um, a set amount, correct, if you're a private attorney, like whatever it. it's contracted through the state. Right. So and for this instance, it was $2,000. That's what the attorneys were given. Um to prepare for a quadruple, excuse me, a triple homicide murder. They were given $2,000 pay to prepare everything prior to a trial. And, and I know that folks listening may think, wow, that's a lot of money. But no, you have nothing. no idea the amount of time um, that's spent um, preparing for trial. That that's, that's a pittance. That's a pittance. Yeah. Well, and especially when you account to the months, preparation it takes that's not i mean that's way below minimum wage (laughs) even in the 80s i bet that's below minimum wage for these attorneys working on these cases either that or you just don't put in that work well certainly the state paid for expert services um things of that matter yeah there was no experts called at the trial so wow 
Yeah. You know, and, and one of the bad things without having a good, strong um, public defender system is oftentimes folks charged with these heinous crimes get an attorney who may specialize in bankruptcy Yeah, um, and, and doesn't know their way around a criminal court. And that that's a travesty as well. Yeah, for sure. So Williams is able to get a new trial granted. Um, and this is done because in 2011, James White files a petition seeking to overturn his conviction and says, oh, yeah, I remember all that testimony I, I supplied on all six of those murders. That was all a lie. I didn't. That, that was all a lie. I did it because the DA told me he'd get me out in 15 years. It's been 15 years. I need out. So let me out because he wanted the DA's office to honor that. The agreement they yes, made. Yes. The verbal contract that he would be able to write some letter to the clemency board where his sentence would be commuted in 15 years. So he was, he was PO'd when 15 years came around. He threw all these people under the bus. He pled guilty to six murders and he's still sitting in prison. Well, and just a, just an asterisk to, to that usually in any plea hearing. Um, and, and I, I think this is probably a, a nationwide standard, even back in the early two thousands, uh, during the, the plea colloquy between the judge and the accused, the judge is going to ask, has anybody promised you anything to get you yeah, to plead? I know that from just watching like SVU. <laughs> Has anybody coerced your testimony? Have you been offered any private deals? Because I always think like, God, how annoying would it be if they just said yes? They get all the way to this process and they're just being squirrely and say yes. <laughs> I know that from watching CSI for crying out loud. But you yes. know, and, and but the 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 truly horrible part about this is an accused doesn't know that. Yeah. I've got this side deal going with the prosecutor. It's it's all good and and won't say anything when asked point blank by the judge. Well, it's funny you should say that because the DA at the time said, hey, do not mention this to anybody. Wow. He actually went as far, according to James, went as far as to say, hey, yeah, don't mention this to anybody. So he was already well aware that this had to be private information. So I guess my question is, where was his defense attorney? <laughs> Hold that thought. All right. So... Where was Williams and uh, Wilson's defense? Hold that thought. Okay, so 2013, he gets granted a new trial. Um, obviously, his defense petitions the DA's office for all of their records, all their information for the case so they could prepare. Uh, the DA's office chooses to remain, have the case remain confidential, which I didn't necessarily understand the verbiage in that and said that they reviewed the case file and there was nothing pertinent to the defense. So they, they handed over zero documents of their case file that happened in 2013. Fast forward a few more years, 2018, um, Larry Krasner is elected to office and he forms the conviction integrity unit. And one of the first cases they look at are Williams and Wilson's and December of 2019, a year later after he entered office, um, the Convictions Integrity Unit moved to vacate Williams' murder and dismiss the charges. And then a month later, they did the same for Wilson. Um, good news for Williams. Unfortunately, he has that other murder trial. And I guess I should say they dismissed and vacated the triple homicide murder, the um, the, the two brothers and the man. They vacated uh, Williams' sentence on that. So did the state agree to that or did the judge order it? The state filed the motion. Oh. Yeah. And in, in fact, in a lot of the verbiage of what I said, like, um, particularly I think with the Wilson case, he was the 17-year-old one. He was the one also convicted of these crimes. And like I was going to say, he was, the same thing happened for him a month later. 
Um, but the DA's office said that he needed to be released immediately and given a heartfelt apology. Not that we'll ever rectify anything <laughs> that's been done, but I mean, still, I mean, based on some of the other cases dad and I have covered where people are still actively trying to prosecute these men after they've proven innocent, this how, is refreshing. How long did the conviction integrity unit take to look at this case? Less than a year. Oh my goodness. Oh, I mean, he was, he went in office in 2018. So you gotta think there was some time forming it. And by December of 2019, they were already filing petitions for him. The sentence to be vacated. Wow. So good news. Uh, Wilson's immediately released. Of course, Williams has that Hainsworth that he was convicted on. Uh, a few years later, uh, February of 2021, so last February, the Convictions Integrity Unit moved to vacate and dismiss all charges against Hainsworth for that murder. That was 13 years after the triple homicide was dismissed. So he's released. Um, now let's get into the issues because there are quite a few. Let's do so, as part of the Conviction Integrity Unit taking a look at this case, um, they made public and provided the case file to the defense for this triple homicide. And remember, in 2013, the DA was approached about providing any kind of evidence they had for the defense where they said there was nothing valuable for them. There was 22 boxes, 42 thousand pages worth of evidence okay here's another asterisk i'm going to add to this um there's a little uh united states supreme court case called brady versus maryland yes and, and i know you've talked about we, this i was just gonna say our very last episode we talked about brady which which stands for the proposition if there is any evidence no matter how slight if there's any evidence that could go to to exonerate somebody or be a defense the state's got to cough it up yep you know, and it's it's interesting because many prosecutors' offices across the country will have this open file policy, which means I should be able to come in, look at their file, flop through it and everything. Yeah. Um, and, and I think open file, and I'm using air quotes if you can't hear them. <laughs> we have, we have, Dad and I have to, we have to disclose when we're doing air quotes and eye rolls because that happens quite a bit. Yes. Open file, I think, is just, um, is just a couple of words used oftentimes to appease the defense bar. Yeah. Well, speaking of Brady violations, wouldn't you know, in 42,000 pages of oh. documents, there were several. Um, and again, 42... Okay, okay, wait. Okay, yes. We went from none <laughs> to 42,000... That, that's the case file. That's how big the case file was. Wow. That the, the district attorney in 2013 said, there's nothing relevant to you in these files. You don't need them. We're going we're gonna to maintain... Um, what was the wording? We're going to keep it... What did I say? Confidential. Confidential, whatever that means. Because clearly the prosecutor would know best yeah. what would could be yeah. used to uh, defend somebody. Clearly they would know better than the prosecutor. And I, I feel like we should have done maybe not necessarily a trigger warning, but a warning to everybody <laughs> listening prior to that mom is a little bit more feisty than dad. <laughs> so you're, you're definitely getting that. Um, just to outline some of the most like what the F is going on issues that I found because keep in mind again there's 42,000 pages there were so many things just like what the heck is going on um so first of all let's get into the David Lee who had never done anything wrong a day in his life and oh my gosh I'm just I'm here on my own like on my own on my own count I need to do this I need to clear my conscience is it because he'd always snitched and never got convicted well, of anything wouldn't you know um he had already been involved in two previous murder charges that he avoided being charged for providing testimony in. 
Um, one of those murder cases, keep in mind the triple homicide, uh, the defendants were obviously James who admitted, and then uh, Chris Williams and Theo Wilson. Theo Wilson's attorney was um, just so happened to be the prosecutor for one of the murder trials. I'm going to need the name and address of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> just so happened to be the prosecutor for that murder trial that David Lee testified in to avoid prosecution. Um, later asked, of course, the attorney's like, oh, no, I have, I have no, I've never heard that name a day in my life. I'm familiar with the murder trial I tried. I, I personally prosecuted, but I have no, no idea about that witness that testified, that key witness that testified as a character medication. Nope. Don't know anything about it. So there's that. So in fact, he was not squeaky clean and he may have only not had anything more than a parking ticket because he provided testimony to not be charged with two previous, two separate previous murders. Well, and you know what? Um, that would also be information covered under Brady versus Maryland. Well, and it talked too about how obviously that's a conflict of interest. Oh, if, you think? If, if, <laughs> if nothing else, that's a conflict of interest. Okay, so further going down. Asterisk. If yeah. I would have had that information, David Lee would have been crying on the stand. I'm just putting that out there. Oh, there you go. So there's that. Um, the next part... Uh, James, when he came out in 2013, or excuse me, I think it was 2011, uh, filing that petition because he wanted out because he was promised to get out in 15 years. Um, he indicated, obviously, that the triple homicide, all the testimony he provided to that was false. He didn't know who they were. He didn't know anything about it. He started talking about this deal, this underhanded deal he had with the DA at the time, which, of course, wasn't in anything. Well, when they opened up this case file, there was troves of evidence and messages and recordings between... I don't know if recordings, but tons of evidence between James and his mother and the DA pretty much outlining that, yes, in fact, that the DA did tell James this as part of um, providing this testimony about the 15 years and you're out sort of thing. So there was that. Um, there was also, and I'm going to conclude this in the pictures with this podcast, a handwritten note by the DA found in the file, uh, air quotes, get morgue photos of Jamaicans show to white to alleviate ID problem. <laughs> Meaning that their chief eyewitness in this case didn't even know what the victims looked like. So he had to get the morgue photos in order for him to be able to identify them. <sighs> Again, um, Brady versus Maryland. <laughs> so um, that DA that originally tried this case, it just so happens that now he is a defense attorney. When questioned, obviously he says, oh no, there was absolutely no misconduct at all in this case. Um, and he issued a statement where he questions the motives of DA Krasner and why he would air quote, make this up. Um, which I, I don't question know. the motives of a guy who would make handwritten notes. Please get me some pictures of some so other can, guys so that my witness who's never met the victims can identify them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let yeah. me ask you this. Was he, was the, the district attorney who prosecuted these cases, was he terminated? Uh, yeah. The one in 2013 that said that there was no evidence in the file that she was a lot, there was a huge turnover 
uh, when Krasner got on, he pretty much, I think from what I can re- get a gist of fired everybody in that office. Cause it's very evident, especially when you start looking at 21 exonerations from just them doing this from 2018, keep in mind that involves COVID years. You know what I mean? That, I mean, people aren't working to full capacity during COVID, especially for exonerations. That's not a fluke. That's not a bad jury. Um, that is a systematic abuse Absolutely. of the system. Absolutely. So I don't know if particular, if he was one of them, for sure that was fired. I do know that he is now a defense attorney, but I know that majority of that office was let go when Krasner got in. Probably with good reason. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So, 21 good reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. Um, and then we get into all of the expert testimony regarding blood splatter. And we had mentioned earlier how the three victims in the trial or the triple homicide were thrown from the vi- moving vehicle, the moving van, right? Wait a minute. Blood splatter in the rented van or lack thereof or lack thereof. It, it had to deal with the positioning of the bodies when they were discovered. Um, and the blood evidence that was there indicated that they were shot there, not somewhere else and dumped, but they were physically shot there based upon the pooling of the blood. Um, and then again, and it kind of got into with the trial, uh, the prosecutor and the judge kind of shut down questioning regarding this, but there was no abrasions, cuts, bruises, scrapes, nothing on these three men. Um, just the single bullet wounds to the head. See, I would find that important. Yeah. Which, I mean, and that's one of the reasons why he was, um, Williams was able to get his retrial in 2013 for the lack of effective counsel and for the lack of expert witnesses that testified during this. Did he have counsel? I mean, was, was the person awake during the trial? <laughs> well, and, and see, it gets a little confusing because there was two separate counsels at the same trial. So I'm not real sure of the line of questioning, whether it was Wilson or Williams attorney that was doing the questioning. But at one point they had, there was three, the state called three um, expert witnesses or no, excuse me, the deceased, the three victims were all uh, the medical examiners were all different on each three of them. So each three of them was on the stand. And during one of them, one of the defense attorneys started questioning what would happen to the body if it was shot and then thrown out of vehicle which got into a lot of speculation. And then the judge shut that line of questioning down pretty quick and told the jury to disregard all the questioning. Cause it got to, okay. Cause he, I th- essentially he was asking what would happen to a body if you're thrown out on a brick, you know what I mean? He's like, well, you know, you, there's no way of no, I can't tell you, you know, what if he was thrown in the grass? I mean, obviously there's not going to be any bruises if he's on a grass opposed to if he's on a con- I mean, so it got, so yeah. How about grass stains? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so all of the, all of, and this was all, all of this information was in the case file that nothing pertinent to the defense. Keep in mind. Um, so there Again, was Brady versus Maryland. <laughs> if you listeners learn one thing, learn Brady there versus Maryland. Go. Okay. So, um, yeah, all that was in there that they clearly had to have been shot. Majority of them, like the gun, the, the positioning of the bullet had to have come straight down from on top and not like next to him in a car seat up to his head and the distance between the wound and where the bullet entered. I mean, all that evidence pointed towards, no, they were absolutely not shot in a van and thrown out. And see, I'm going to interject here. Had, had he had competent counsel, had the state of Philadelphia fulfilled their constitutionally required duties to provide the money to defend this guy, 
a good attorney would have had experts, not at the retrial, but at the beginning, who yeah. could have told them this from the beginning yeah. of it, that would have prevented. How many years well, did and, he? And there was some sort of line of questioning where um, he said that it is an effective counsel motion that the defense attorney at the time was trying to get that brought in on cross-examination, but then when the question got shut down, it didn't happen, and he didn't even ask any questions on the rest. It was, yeah, so... Well, we I get, mean, obviously, there's definitely missing missing quality in the defense he received. We get rulings from judges all the time that we don't like, um, but there's a way to keep that in the record that goes up on the appeal so yeah. that hopefully somebody isn't languishing in prison. Well, for- and it seems like, too, why would you just rely on getting that in cross-examination and not go the mile and get your own witness in there that clear? I mean, doesn't have to even... I mean, the witnesses in this case, according to the case file, all said that there's no way they were shot in a van and thrown out the back. They clearly had to be shot in the grass based on the blood pooling. So Perhaps it, maybe the $2,000 he got paid wasn't um, of enough interest of him to do what was supposed to have been done. Yeah, I think I think he could be onto something with that one. Um, I'm trying to think of something. There was, there was so much. Oh, another big thing. They never turned over police report logs, which heavily indicated that there was another suspect in the triple homicide murder. Um, it being, I want to say, a Jamaican drug gang leader at the time. And it was rumored that the three had hit up one of the houses and stole something from this Jamaican leader, drug leader. And uh, there was a hit out for them. So this was all well-known, well-documented. All that was in the case file that, again, the defense had no clue about. Well, and, you know, you can't just say, well, the defense didn't know. The defense didn't know. Any case, you need to file motions and get them in front of the judge. I mean, that's what gives the bite. That's what gives the bite. Yeah. Um, and then lots and lots and lots of stuff questioning the timeline. You had already brought to point, okay, so all this happened in broad daylight. Uh, one of the victim's sisters said she talked to him that night when he was supposedly already deceased by four. She was talking to him at seven o'clock at night. Was it like a seance kind of thing? <laughs> or? No, well, it's on the phone. I don't know. You know, sometimes my phone Phone was, records? My I mean, phone. certainly yes, the defense yes. got phone records. No, nothing. And if they did, it wasn't ever brought up at trial. Um, and also there was a convenience store clerk that testified that there had been a shooting just a few blocks away. Some man came up and told him to call the police. And that was significantly after four, like seven or eight o'clock at night too. So lots of stuff calling into question. Obviously he had no clue. James had no clue what he was talking about and just came up with the story. And if the defense would have been provided any of that evidence, it would have been very easy, I think, for them to prove that. Well, I I have a sneaking suspicion that maybe some of the detectives in the case um, either gave him some pertinent facts to go on or I I don't think James started from scratch. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, he was given the pictures of the deceased. Well, yeah, he he got prepped a little (laughs) bit. And I guess that's another thing, too, that was very well documented how many times James was taken to the DA's office to discuss his testimony, which uh, that doesn't sound on the up and up to like, what do you need to discuss? If it's the truth, what do you need to discuss? And why do you need to do it so many times and for hours at length? Because all this is in records because he is an inmate at the county jail awaiting prosecution. So there's lots of records of him transported to the DA's office as well. Well, and interesting, I, I mean, I can't say this with a broad brush, but usually if there's questions or further investigation that needs to be done. Isn't it done by investigators? It's done by the detective. See, that's, what I, that's what I kept getting so confused on, too, because that was 
again, my very novice crime junkie mind, like what, when does a DA get involved with interrogating? And well, and, 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 um, funny you should ask that because, um, (laughs) if the DA is talking directly to the accused and the accused has counsel and counsel's not there, that's a flag on the play. Well, according to James though, I mean, he has this underground deal with this DA. He's got to be on the good side. Otherwise he's going to face six, six capital punishment murder charges. Yeah. That, that process, prosecutor um, shouldn't have a license to practice law. Yeah, well, what do you do? Apparently, you're a defense attorney. (laughs) No offense. Okay, so um, that was a whole lot about James. And, you know, I tried to find out what's going on with him now. I did a search of the Pennsylvania uh, criminal justice to see, like, where he was incarcerated at, and it brought up four names where the aliases were James white so that's where i get that's probably not his real name there's no um as as far as like news articles or anything about him currently and in fact apparently in philadelphia james white is a very common name to commit murders or (laughs) suspect name because there was two other ones just this year james white that with a double homicide and then there was also um something involving a police officer i mean there's lots of james whites involved in the criminal justice system i I would suspect james white is a common name worldwide so when you google james white it brings up a lot of searches it does not bring up the james white we're referring to i believe um but chris williams was really truly um the victim in this case keep in mind six murder charges off of one person's testimony and one person that's already being already indicated that he was involved in three before he started naming any names and they just took them took his word at its value and they didn't have any evidence to support this at all in fact years later uh james said that um obviously chris was not some big huge drug killing gun running gang leader if anything he sold maybe five dollar bags of weed to people on the street he was a family man he was a carpenter james spent 31 years incarcerated wrongfully 25 to 5 25 years of that in solitary confinement on death row um, keep in mind, we've talked about this before, death row, only leaving for showers an hour in the exercises cages at a time and small trips to the law library. Um, he was actually given a death date, March 23rd. He was weeks away, not even weeks, it was days. It was a little over a week away from being executed when they granted a stay on his execution. Um, you know, and ha- as a human being, how do you come back from that? I don't know. How, how do you come back and be a father to his six know. babies? How- okay, and that's something else. I mean, he missed, uh, let me get the right number here because I do not want to miscount, 26. He missed the birth of 26 grandchildren. Um, he missed the majority of his six children's life. His youngest child at that time was six months old, so he grew up his entire life without his dad. Uh, I, God, it just, and all of this because of one 19 year old decided and and that's another thing i really started looking into it because like why did he choose chris williams in the first place to indicate him on all these crimes i couldn't really find anything anything and see i don't see this as an individual problem i see this as a systematic for sure problem for sure it always fascinates me tracing back to the origins of this and obviously the system failed Chris and all. And I don't want to say Chris because there are several, several other co-defendants that were charged and have since been exonerated um, based off of James White's testimony. 
But I think it's interesting just based on this one man's choice to name these people all the lives that he ruined doing so. Um, Like I said, February 9th of last year, he was finally exonerated out of the Haynes, um, Haynes Smith case. And so he was released and he released to his sister and his um, some of his adult children also took him in. In just December of this past year, he filed a civil suit against the county, obviously, for compensation. And I hope he gets an astronomical. He deserves more than I can even come up with a number of what he deserves and what there, he's lost. And, there, there's no amount of money no. that will give this man back his no. dignity, um, his mental health or 25 years that was stolen from him because the system was broke. Yep. And again, we're getting into that. The mental toll it takes on somebody to be in solitary confinement for 25 years um, and not only being in solitary confinement, but having it in the back of your mind at any time they could walk me down this hall and they could kill me and there's nothing I can do. And but, living with that every day yeah. for 25 years. Yeah. And even going up to the point where you're days away from your execution date, days away from it. I, 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 I can't put into words how that makes me feel. It's, it's awful. Um, you know, I, I've, I've operated in our justice system for 31 years now. And I think for the most part, it works. But it only works when all of the players are playing by the rules. Yeah. Um, all it takes is, is one rogue player not playing by the rules. And that's what causes people to lose decades of their lives, yeah. for which they can never be repaid. Yeah. Because, again, it's not... And I, I guess... Um, Wilson met with William's family prior to him being released just to kind of like prep them on what he is like. He's not going to be the same person. He's not going to be the father, you knew. just kind of prepping him for what his mentality is. Because think about it, third using losing 30 years. I remember when I worked for parole, we'd have people that would be incarcerated for long amounts of time and get out, not knowing what a cell phone is, not knowing what the internet is. I mean, just, I mean, that's so like, small but just the I'm like how do you function in a world where you don't understand anything of it you don't I mean you truly and what's worse um they become institutionalized that, for sure that's the norm for sure um and it's 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 hard to come back from that for sure if you if you can at all many don't many yeah. can't oh, for sure yes absolutely absolutely um there's not a whole lot about I know he went back to being a carpenter so he's doing that there's not a whole lot of information about what he's currently doing just because his release is so fresh, so new. Um, I don't I don't know. It's sad. I was going to say, oh, there's one thing that his attorney said that um, even the DA who filed the uh, motion to dismiss all of his charges said, you know, we always talk about lightning's not going to strike twice. You know what I mean? And especially in wrongful convictions. And she said, you know what? Lightning struck twice on him. He was wrongfully convicted twice, not once twice. Um, he is the only man to have been charged with six murders, have two acquitted and four dismissed. Wow. So, I mean, just those numbers alone are it's a travesty. It is. It is. He went in a 29 year old man and he's out in his sixties now. So, wow. Yep. And that is his sad story. And I know there's a lot of, I mean, obviously we don't want there to be um, the need for integrity units, but had there not been one in this case, I don't know that he would have ever gotten his day, you know? Um, 
especially if that same mentality maintained in that DA's office, they would have never turned over any of those files and all that evidence would have just would have been lost. So it's definitely, I think, a step in the right right direction. You know, and, uh, conviction integrity units are, are are relatively relatively new for an old person like me. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, my knee jerk reaction is, well, that's like letting the fox watch the chicken yeah. coop. Um, but but I, we've seen with this story that you told so well um, that you. they can they can have tremendous a tremendous impact um, on our. Uh, systematically broken criminal justice system, yeah. and, and and that's good. I uh, I did a little research on um, the conviction integrity units, and um, as it turns out, Project Innocence, um, which is a, a, a leader, a leader in um, uh, rectifying wrongful convictions, they have um, set out a, a, a list of best practices um, for these uh, conviction integrity units. And wouldn't you know, one of the best practices that they list is that uh, these units should have a defense attorney on it. Huh. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. And going along with what you said, there's a lot of really good and all of our research, uh, Chris, our producer, is so kind to include the list for everything we receive our information from. One of the documents I received was a very in-depth study at conviction and integrity units, and they're sporadic. I mean, nobody is forced to have one. So the, it's like I said earlier, it's up to the individual DA to pursue getting one and then enforcing it and making sure it's viable. Um, but there are several, and I mean several, like 10, 15, 20 that have counties that have them and have zero exonerations. Um, based on just the little bit that we've been able to cover, obviously ex wrongful convictions aren't a fluke. So I think that just goes hand in hand. It's going to be as good as the effort that's put into it. Well, and, and you've got to, I look at it this way. It's, it's a tiny step. It's a, it's a baby step in rectifying um, the systematic disease that is our criminal justice system yeah. for a prosecutor's office to even um, admit suggest set up that there needs to be a, con a, a conviction integrity unit that means that they recognize that there's a problem yeah so for sure and, and another thing i want to touch on i'm not going to talk about it because honestly i could do a whole another hour talking about it but just the environment around this philly da's office at that time and i just can't get over how they would value the life of the individuals lost and only give James five to 10 years per murder. I mean, that, that alone blows my mind. But again, that's a whole nother conversation for another time. Thank you so much, mom, for coming on here and being your feisty, normal, lovely self. Thank you. Thank um, you. If anybody has any questions, concerns, comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get us at the cleared pod on Instagram or cleared podcast on Facebook. Uh, until next time, we'll see you later. This is cleared podcast. Mm -hmm.